cut in halfway through a sentence and see if that works as an introduction. And if it does, welcome to this week's Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And it's me, Matthew Pay. Harry? Yeah, what's up, Matt? You know what I would really like to see more of? I don't know if I want you to tell me that. I, you know what I'm missing? When I sit down on the sofa at the end of the day and I have my 19th glass of red wine, I want to watch a really nice, very personal video of some sort of animal story, you know, where people, you know, they maybe meet an abandoned animal and they, you know, they're already working hard, but they, they love these right. animals. And, and also they're doing it with their, I want a bit of like a couple, you know, like working mm. together and kind of like a, a good will story that makes people feel good about themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like I've been missing it. I don't know what you mean, but. But. If you did want to see that. If, if, I mean, we're just saying if. If you wanted to see that, yeah. I don't know if you um, if you remember. I'm going to say the last episode because uh, in podcast world we actually have no concept of time. No. But in the last episode, you might remember that yeah. Renata and I rescued some kittens. Uh, oh, I remember now. Yep, yep, yeah. I remember you bleating on. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, rambled on about rescuing yep. kittens. Yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kittens. I um, yeah, I might be able to help you out with no. that video wish, like you didn't already know. <laughs> I actually did create a video of the story by popular demand, and um, by popular demand, I mean my mum. Yeah. Created a video of the story of the mum and the kittens, which we're going to post on the Animal Chat social media. So anybody that wants mm. to see the real life story of the rescue of a mother and kittens by the co-host of the Animal Chat podcast, the CEO of Change for Animals Foundation, one of the most progressive and dynamic animal welfare organizations. Jesus. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> I've got better one. Okay, watch. Coming soon, a tale of two people and a cat starring harry ekman ceo of change Scramble foundation and his wife you know i'm just i'm playing up the you know the patriarchy in cinema that's why i'm just calling renara you are yeah so i just wanted no, to No, she's she's yeah. mrs harry ekman as was the case in a letter we received last week which she questioned, <laughs> which she questioned me on and i told her to just learn a place grateful. <laughs> So has your video has your video got a title, Harry? What's it called? <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. I just posted it on our social media. But it's going to be the only video on, on the Animal Chat social media sites. So yeah. anybody that wants a, a nice four and a half minute video of an animal rescue and hasn't had enough of watching kitten videos, which apparently are very hard to come by on social media and YouTube these days. Really? Uh, yeah, really tough to find videos yeah. of cats and kittens. But if you look hard enough, you'll be able to find our one. But yeah, anybody that's interested, have a look. Have a look at the kittens. They're all very cute and they're actually still looking for homes. The mum... The mum, if you're interested, yeah. has gone to a forever home. Aww. And by forever home, I mean actual forever home and not like, you know, the bin. The bin. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, she's actually in a... This sounds terrible, but she's in a farm in the north of Portugal. And that's not a euphemism for euthanasia. We actually... I have... Fr Special <laughs> farm. It's a farm in the north of Portugal. It really is. No, it's all <laughs> 
<laughs> we oh god no one of my oh. one of my friends here in portugal her family owns a farm and animals rescue and a sanctuary in the north of portugal and they take in feral cats so we actually took the cat up there last week she's now in a her own enclosure for a few weeks while she gets acclimatized to her new location and then she's going to live mm-hmm. out her life in this lovely beautiful sanctuary environment having the freedom to roam the entire farm oh. and be cared for by a bunch of people up there who are looking after animals because she wasn't really suited to being in a home environment she was a bit too outdoorsy so we took her up there last week and she settled in well we're actually going up there again in a couple of weeks to check up on her and uh, and see how she's doing but so she's got home but we're still we have an office full of kittens who are getting bigger and more mental by the day Mm -hmm. they're now sleeping on the laptop whilst renata is trying to write on it and biting her hair and and photo bombing the um zoom videos i'll tell you something that I have noticed recently. You know, you're saying that it's very, kitten videos are very hard to come by. So hard to come online. Do you know what else, unfortunately, is not that hard to come by, Harry? And I'm going to have a rant now. I'm sorry. Oh, God, here we go. Videos of kids hugging dogs that are stressed. Hate that. It is driving me, honestly, like, you see these websites that say, when this child was scared, the dog was there to help it. And it's this poor dog that's got this, like, seven-year-old, got it in a headlock, and this dog is panting, yep. clearly stressed. And, oh, anyway, sorry. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, hate it. Stressed dogs, they're not happy. No. They're not enjoying it. In their mind, they're going, if I was a wolf and I bit your child's head off, nobody would blame me. No. But I'm a Labrador, and I, I have to just stay with this and bear it. Don't do it. Don't do it, people. But you know what, Harry? Too many don't, though. This is the problem, you know? So many kids get bitter because of these sort of interactions and because people can't spot anxiety and frustration in dogs correctly. Mm -hmm. There's a piece of research that was done that showed, believe it or not, dog owners owners were worse than non-dog owners in spotting and identifying signs of stress and frustration in a dog. And they were more willing to let their child approach a stressed and anxious dog Mm -hmm. compared to non-dog owners. So basically, just sort your shit out, people. Sorry. That's a public service announcement from the Animal Chat Podcast. Sort (laughs) yourselves out, people who let your children hug dogs that don't like being hugged. There you go. Couldn't say it more clearly, could we? So, Harry Ekman. Yes, Matthew Payne. In all seriousness to people, the video about Harry's wonderful story is going to be on our Facebook page, and we'll put a link to it on the other pages as well. Have a look. It's beautiful. Very well filmed, if you don't, if I don't mind you know, saying, Harry. Thank you very much, Matt. That's very kind of you. Lovely, beautiful skies in the background and colours and stuff. Um, I can't take credit for those, but... Yeah. Oh, was that Renato? What, the sky? Oh, I thought you meant the recording. <laughs> Yeah, bravo to the sky. Well done, sky. Brilliant sky. Excellent trees. Great performance. Um, but this week, Harry, yeah. we are back with another episode of the Animal Chat Podcast. We certainly are. Uh, Harry, do you like tigers? Do I like tigers? I think they're great. See what I did there? <laughs> it's really bad. That was terrible. But really funny. But really, really funny. <laughs> um, right. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, you love, they're great. You love tigers. I love tigers. Would you, like, would you have the opportunity to chat to one of the world's most eminent experts on tigers? You better fucking believe it. A chief scientist on the subject. Not just any scientist, a chief scientist. No, a chief, a chief scientist. Like, and a PhD scientist. Like a doctor and such. Like a doctor. He's got a doctor in this such. Well, this week we have got... Dr. Tiger! <laughs> PhD. Oh, 
Panthera are going to have to share this shit, aren't they? <laughs> I think we're getting worse, you know. Well, yes, Harry, we have got Mr. John Goodridge, PhD. He is the chief scientist and the director of Panthera. Who, regular podcast listeners, will know that Matt is a huge fan and advocate of Panthera. Yep, just saying that, leaving that out there. Still haven't had any offers, but... Tell us about John. Tell us about this podcast, Matt, because this is a real cracker. Basically, we talk about his career getting from getting into the animal welfare, wildlife conservation sector, where he worked here and there with some other species, but eventually ended up in Siberia carrying out some really important research and conservation, focusing on Siberian tigers and some of the other large carnivores that lived there, like bears and such and then his career going to other organizations like the amazing wildlife conservation society and then ended up at panthera where he is overseeing their entire tiger program and panthera really are one of the world leaders when it comes to big cat conservation in the world some of the world's most eminent big cat scientists have either worked or been funded by panthera and they have some really innovative up-to-date modern approaches to big cat conservation and john talks about this he talks about all the threats facing tigers we touched on the tiger king and we touched on humanity's love of tigers was one of the things that we Mm. talked about how everybody around the world tigers regularly come up as people's favorite animal and and we talk a little bit about why that is why they're so enigmatic and what people love about them so much and and one of the things that i love most chat to john was the stories of the experiences he had because he's been so privileged to be right there and see tigers in the wild and it was just really wonderful to have him share his insights share his knowledge learn a little bit more about tiger conservation and what's going on with tigers in the world and hear about his experiences with them yeah it was a a real pleasure and um also really nice guy as well he was this is believe it or not season two episode six well pretty much halfway through the second season of the animal chat podcast with mr john goodrich The thing that I find fascinating is how enigmatic and iconic tigers are as a species. And when you think about animal welfare, when you think about conservation, and even when you think about emblematic species, tigers are always pretty much the top of the list. Whether it's through folklore or history or stories or just the way tigers are portrayed in the media, there's something really magical and mystical about tigers that captures people's imagination and passions and for somebody that's worked with them and studied them for so long why do you think that is because they're not the only large predator they're not the only impressive creature that lives on this earth so what do you think it is about tigers that so captures everybody's imagination that's a tough question to answer because i you know i've thought about that and i really don't know but you're exactly right i mean tigers are number one on a lot of lists there was a survey it's probably 20 years ago now i think it was done by the bbc though where tigers came out on top as people's favorite animal even above domestic dogs and 
almost, well, I shouldn't say almost every language in the world, but on probably every continent, even a lot of indigenous tribes know what tigers are. And that was true 100 years ago. So I'm not sure what the fascination is, perhaps because they are so large, although they're not really larger than African lions. But in contrast to African lions, tigers are very secretive, hard to observe, which is one of the things that's always fascinated me about many carnivores. I always wanted to study and and work on the animals that were so difficult to observe and hence difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. So comparing lions and tigers, the two biggest cats, we get to see lions a lot, even if you don't go to Africa to see them. Certainly, we can see all the footage on television and so on. And so lions aren't such a mystery, whereas tigers are secretive, they're hard to observe, and they are a big mystery to people, I think. I was once in Sumatra, John, and I was uh, trekking through one of the rainforests there. And we had a guide who'd been working there for many years, doing these sort of trips and leading parties. And I was talking to him and I asked him if he'd ever seen one. And he almost laughed at me, like at how absurd the question was. And he said that the only thing he'd ever heard was the mating call. That was it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe like a, a print here or there. But the idea that he would even see one, whereas I was just, you know, really excited. Have you ever seen a tiger? And he just laughed in my face as if it's just the most ridiculous thing because they're just so secretive, aren't they? And particularly in dense areas like Sumatra and rainforests and you know, the heights yeah. that they reach in Bhutan and things, it's just... It's not an animal they see that often. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to say, especially in the Southeast Asian rainforest. It's so dense and tigers are at such low densities in those habitats naturally. It's just, it's really hard to see them. Harry and I were talking before this started, John, about how's the best way to ask a question I'm about to ask. So I'm, I'm going to ask it in the best way I can, but forgive me if it's a bit too broad, but what is the situation with tigers now? I know recently there was a, a recent count where I believe there's been a, an increase in numbers, slight, but an increase. And I know over the last few years, there's been a, a concerted effort, particularly among some of the main stakeholders from the WWF to the World Bank. It seems from the outside, from me, that there's a bit more of a collaborative stakeholder approach now with different agencies in different countries. What is the situation with tigers now very broadly in terms of their conservation status? Yeah, easy. Um... You know, when you're thinking about the status of tigers worldwide, it's helpful to think of three different regions, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and then Northeast Asia, so Russia and um, Northeastern China. We'll start with South Asia because that's where things are going really well. The countries we're talking about are India, Bangladesh, Bhutan, and Nepal, the four South Asian countries that have tigers. India and Nepal have been doing a great job, and they've been monitoring tiger numbers every four years with a countrywide census of tigers. And both countries have increased tiger numbers pretty dramatically, let's say, since the turn of the century. Bhutan, it also looks like, is doing a great job. They haven't been monitoring their tiger numbers for quite as long, but they recently did. That's three or four years ago now, but their first countrywide census. And it came up with a nice number of, I don't remember exactly, but say around 150 tigers, which was kind of what we expected. Bangladesh is a little bit of a different story. It almost doesn't matter how well tigers are doing there. They're all in the Sunderbunds, and that habitat is going to be underwater within 20, 30, 40 years, Hmm. whatever, you know, depending on which sea level rise prediction you look at. So that's South Asia. Things are going pretty well. Tiger numbers are increasing. There is a lot of government buy-in to tiger conservation. Governments are funding tiger conservation pretty well there, and they've got a reasonably good handle on things, despite being some of the highest human population densities in the world. Now we'll move on to Russia and northeastern China. 
we think tigers are doing pretty well there. We don't have good countrywide counts for Russia or China, but the monitoring that's being done in certain protected areas there suggests that tiger numbers are at least stable. Russia puts out an estimate of about 500 or 550 tigers, but that's not based on scientifically valid field methodology. But still, it looks like tigers are doing reasonably well there. And we do know that across the border in northeastern China, we're talking the area of China that's on the border with Russia and North Korea, there is now a small breeding population. That was not true 10 or 20 years ago, and tiger numbers are increasing there. Um, now for the bad news is Southeast Asia. So the tiger range countries where tigers exist now are Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia, and Indonesia. In Southeast Asia, we've lost tigers from Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam since the turn of the century. And tigers, for the most part, are not doing well elsewhere in Southeast Asia. Myanmar has one tiny little breeding population of less than 20 individuals. Thailand is doing better. They've probably got close to 200 tigers and two good solid breeding populations. But Thailand is the only country where we know there are breeding populations of the Indochinese subspecies of tigers. Mm -hmm. Moving south to Malaysia, things are pretty bad in Malaysia. Numbers are, are declining rapidly. And this is the Malay subspecies. Malaysia is the only country where they're found. WWF Malaysia recently predicted that tigers may be extinct in Malaysia within three to five years. I'm a little bit more optimistic than that, but still the pressure is really on. Indonesia is doing a little bit better. We don't know how many tigers they have in country, but we do know that they have several breeding populations and a number of them, um, the data suggests that they're stable. Across the board, the main threat to tiger populations, whether it's South Asia, Southeast Asia, Russia, China, is poaching. The tigers are poached to use their parts in the traditional Asian medicine market, and they're also poached as, you know, for furs or whatever, as luxury items. And the market is primarily in East Asia, especially China and Vietnam. That's the number one threat, despite the fact that forest loss in Southeast Asia, the rates of forest loss are the highest as anywhere in the world. So habitat loss is still a huge threat to tigers, but the poaching problem is so significant, especially in Southeast Asia, that it overshadows the threat of habitat wow. loss. Is there wow. any way of estimating what level poaching actually is at? What are the kind of numbers we're talking about? Yeah, poaching intensity is really difficult to estimate. Mm. In law enforcement, it's called the silent victim phenomena, where you have a hard time understanding what rates of a crime are if nobody's yeah. reporting it. And so poaching, you know, a tiger dies in the forest, nobody knows it but the person who killed it. So, you know, we try to rely on border seizures or proxy measures like the number of snares that uh, patrol teams are finding in the forest and that sort of thing. But what that doesn't give us is, I think the kind of the question you're getting at is, do we understand what kind of poaching levels are sustainable mm. for a tiger population? And when is it too much? Yeah. And when it's too much, that's when we really need to start intervening. And we don't understand that. But we do what we do at the sites where we work is we track tiger numbers very closely by camera trapping every single year to estimate not only the numbers of tigers, but also some good indications of poaching levels, which include the longevity of adults. You know, if we're seeing a really high turnover, especially in the adult female population, with new individuals showing up every year and old individuals disappearing, that suggests a, a high poaching rate and a poaching rate that is not sustainable.
because one of the things that we need for a sustainable tiger population is an adult population that's surviving long enough so that they can reproduce. Mm. Out of just personal interest here, John, as well, in the area you, you mentioned, Southeast Asia, where things don't look so good, what's the, the tiger farming situation like at the moment? Is that something that you're aware of at Panthera, but leave to other agencies? Or, or is it something that's, is it growing? Is it getting worse? Because I know for a number of years, it was quite a great concern. Yeah, it's it would fall under the category of something we're aware of, but mostly leave to other organizations to deal with. We do uh, some interventions at the policy level, I guess you'd say. And you know, we recently put out a statement on captive breeding of all cats, but especially tigers. Um, I would say the situation is probably getting worse. There's a lot of tiger farming going on in Laos. Thailand has a lot of captive tiger populations. Of course, you've certainly heard about the tiger temple mm-hmm. that was shut down a few mm-hmm. years ago, but there's continuing efforts to sort of open that back up. So it is, it is a real concern, and that has a significant impact on wild populations because those tiger farmings are farming for the traditional Asian medicine market, essentially, and that's their market, mm-hmm. selling illegally. You know, every tiger range country is a signatory to CITES, which means they shouldn't be exporting tiger parts. So it's the farming itself may not be illegal, but the export of tiger parts is mm-hmm. illegal. So there's all this illegal activity going on. But what they're doing is they're propping up the market for tiger parts. And so with the market there and being supported, that puts continued pressure on wild populations. And like most things, wild tigers are always going to be more valuable than captive. With a trade that is so underground and unregulated in the way that it is, there's no way of really measuring the impact or being able to trace once it's tiger bone or once it's in traditional Chinese medicine, you're not really going to be able to say, well, this was this was captive tiger, this was poached. Maybe some people be aware of it, but the people who are actually supplying the trade, they don't really care, do they? No, no. The suppliers don't really care. But you can often say whether it came from, from a captive source or a wild source by doing DNA analysis. Mm. That's not always true. You know, I don't know if, if anybody's tried to extract DNA from tiger bone wine, mm. for example, if that's a possibility or not. I would imagine it would be, actually. But that also gets very expensive if you're going to try to run DNA analyses on every tiger sample that you get your hands on, and it is difficult to trace. But the reason you, you often can tell is many of the captive tigers are hybrids among different tiger subspecies. Mm. One of the things that fascinated me, I think it was about a decade ago, there was the the TV series Lost Land of the Tiger, which talked about putting a more positive slant <laughs> rather than, than the species being decimated by Chinese traditional medicine, is that there was this discovery of these high corridors through the Himalayas where tigers hadn't been seen before and there was no understanding that there was actually tigers living, A, at the altitude, but moving in the way that they had. And that was quite a wonderful discovery because it showed that the species was existing in places that people didn't necessarily think that it would. Are you still continuing to discover these hopeful moments like that in regards to tigers? Are there still things that surprise you as you continue your work in conservation? Mostly not. Because tigers have been, you know, I, I'm sorry to say, in uh, terms of. Damn, I was hoping that would be a yeah, big, yeah. It's yeah. like, well, actually, last week I found yeah. out this amazing thing about tigers. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, tiger range has been pretty well covered and pretty well researched mm. at this point. 
Um, I mean, there's plenty more to learn about tiger biology, mm -hmm. but where there are and are not tigers, there are a few pockets out there that, you know, we can hope maybe if somebody can get in there, there'd be some tigers. But for the most part, we do know where they are. And most of those pockets really are in, in Myanmar. That said, you know, we recently, over the past couple of years, sort of discovered a new breeding population in Thailand in an area completely separate from where their large tiger population exists in the Western Forest Complex mm -hmm. on the border with Myanmar. In a, in a completely separate area, we found this breeding population. It had been known to the Thai government for at least a decade that they had tigers in this area, but they never demonstrated that it was actually a, a sustainable breeding population. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do that. So that was a big surprise and it was big news and it was it was very exciting. I think, Harry, bringing up the, the Corridor Initiative, which you know, yourself and Dr. Rabinovitz pioneered, particularly from, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but from jaguars as well in South America, mm -hmm. where the genetic analysis found that rather than lots of subspecies, there was actually kind of a single species and that they were moving. There's an amazing talk that Dr. Rabinovitz gives about that, about how he used to, they used to be the old philosophy of protect a habitat, create a reserve just for tigers, when actually you've moved now to more of a corridor trying to link up areas where there's suitable habitat rather than creating isolated areas i was just wondering about it sounds so simple from the outsides but i can imagine i remember him talking about the getting all the governments to sign up how difficult is it to work within tiger conservation specifically with the different governments trying to get them to agree and then implement the idea of a corridor on the ground to stop businesses that have a plantation or communities from taking retributional action for having to coexist with these animals? It, it can be a real challenge, especially mm -hmm. in corridors, because you have so many different stakeholders in a corridor. You know, in a protected area, mm -hmm. if they're strictly protected, you really have only one stakeholder, and that's the protected area authority. And, you know, you need to work with the communities surrounding the protected area because tigers don't pay much attention to those boundaries. But still, when you move into a corridor, so the areas between protected areas, you have local communities, you might have logging companies, mining companies, the highway department, all these different government organizations, and you're trying to get them all on the same page. And that can be a real challenge. That said, I would say for the most part, that's going pretty well in most tiger range states. You know, sometimes it requires lawsuits and that sort of thing, as recently happened in, in India with a major highway through central India, where the, the conservation community took the highway department to court, basically, and, and got them to build what is touted as the largest um, wildlife overpass in the world. And that was built primarily for tigers in India. So it can be incredibly difficult, but one of the nice things about tigers is most of the governments where tigers still exist buy in pretty strongly to tiger conservation, and they do feel it's important, and they are willing to, to spend money on in, things like infrastructure that helps alleviate some of the problems in corridors. I wanted to, to zero in on your experience, Sabia, because I think it's fascinating. It's an area that, when it comes to tiger conservation, that fascinates me just because of the porous borders with China and the sort of the geopolitical issues that there, which I'm assuming are there, but in terms of difficulties in reporting and things like that. But what were the main issues when you worked there in terms of tigers and their relationship with people? Was there a human-wildlife conflict? Was it a poaching issue? What were the main issues with tigers there? Yeah, it's, it was pretty interesting. You know, I arrived in Russia in 1995. So just a few years after Perestroika, and I worked there, I lived there until 2010. 
So it's a, quite a, a long period, and the issues mm. changed over that time period. But before Perestroika in Russia, the borders were closed. Tigers were doing great because there was no trade. There was no mechanism for trade mm. of tiger parts. Tigers were sometimes poached because local hunters saw them as a competitor and, a, and sometimes a threat. But when they were poached, it was just shoot the tiger and leave it there because you'd get in big trouble if anybody found out. But after Perestroika, as the borders started to open, the trade with China, and, and actually initially a big part of the trade was with Japan, um, where I worked in, in Ternay. The next town to the south was a big port, a town called Plastoon. It was a, a big logging town and a port where they were shipping logs off to Japan, and they would get orders for skins in through that port. And so that's when poaching really started to become an issue for tigers. But in terms of local communities, certainly human-tiger conflict was an issue in terms of numbers of livestock killed or people wounded or killed. It wasn't a huge issue, especially when you compare it to someplace like India. But still, every conflict that happened was a very big deal to local communities and really fascinating, actually, because there's lots of bears in that area, too. If a person was attacked by a bear, it'd make the local news. If a person was attacked by a tiger, it would be in the international news overnight. Mm. So a completely different mindset that goes back to the beginning of our conversation of why are tigers so fascinating to people. But livestock did get killed, and more so than livestock, people's dogs would get killed. Tigers would come into towns, especially in the wintertime when they're stressed for prey and take dogs right off their chains. People would occasionally get attacked or killed, but we did an analysis and showed that almost all of the cases of a person being attacked in Russia were botched poaching incidents. So poacher would shoot the tiger, bad shot, didn't kill the tiger, tiger got poacher. And so attacks on humans that aren't related to poaching were really rare, although they, they do happen. But those, those incidences really would get local communities worked up. And because of that, we worked with a government team that dealt with human-tiger conflicts. So when livestock or dogs were killed or people were attacked, we would go and respond to those conflicts and usually ended up trying to catch the tiger and, and move it. Wow. So in terms of looking at that, in comparison to somewhere like the Sundarbans, which you said, which is there's concerns about the flooding uh, coming, but that was quite notorious in terms of tiger-human conflict, in terms of people getting killed, in particular mm. people when they were the, either hunting illegally in there or legally, but also washing and things like that by the river, turning their back, being in quite a crouched position. It's almost like it was almost too tempting for a tiger. Has there been any improvement or any advancement in providing strategies or enabling people to get more protection from tigers? Because like we said at the start of the podcast, tiger is the, the favorite animal in the world, but having to live next to these enigmatic animals is entirely different than voting for one in a popular chart or an online quiz. It's dangerous and it's difficult. And I just wondered, has there been any advancement in providing communities with strategies to prevent terrible tragedies like that, which then would also prevent retributional action? Yeah, um, to a degree. I wouldn't say there's been anything that's really wildly successful, but the work that people have done that really seems to have the, the best impact is empowering local communities to deal with the problems. Mm. You know, So for example, in, in Bangladesh, they've done some work with having these teams that are made up of local community members that respond to incidents with tigers, whether it's a tiger wandering into a village around the edges of the Sunderbunds or a person being killed by a tiger in the forest in the Sunderbund. They have these teams that can respond and that have been trained to deal with, with tigers. And that helps a lot, you know, if, if mm. local communities feel 
empowered and not dependent on the government to deal with the situation because, of course, governments in many of these areas are so remote, you know, you can't expect a, a very rapid response from a government yeah. team or that sort of thing. And then there are a lot of ways that, you know, in Russia, one of the things that we tried to do was teach people just to protect themselves by carrying signal flares. For example, if they've had a confrontation in, with a tiger in the forest, signal flares can be very effective at scaring the tiger away. Mm. Pepper spray is, a, you know, we use pepper spray in North America for bears. Works great on tigers, too. But in a lot of countries, it's not really available. And, and there may be laws against using it. Um, but educating people about how to protect themselves, how to protect their livestock. Um, you know, you bring your livestock in at night. Don't leave them out to pasture. Um, build tiger-proof enclosures for your livestock where you put them at night. That's been fairly effective, especially in Indonesia. So there are a number of interventions, but it, it often really depends on the local situation, the, the local community context. Obviously, it must differ from place to place and community to community. but being able to provide them with tools that can protect them and protect their livestock is one thing. But how do you go about it? Is there an interest from the communities? Do they recognize the inherent value of having an apex predator living in the environment and looking at the importance that it has as far as biodiversity and the ecosystem and everything that the tiger is, is involved in there. Basically, what I'm asking is, do they care enough or is it more of a case of, I guess, legally, we're not allowed to kill them, so I have to find some way of coexisting with them? It's hard to answer that question kind of broadly across tiger range. It really varies by region. And I think one of the reasons for South Asia's success in tiger conservation is certainly because local communities do tend to be much more accepting and even sometimes welcoming of tigers. You know, I would say in my experience with local communities in India and Nepal and even Bangladesh, people want there to be tigers there. They just don't want to be killed by them and they don't want their mm. livestock getting killed by them. Which is fair enough. So when you give them tools, yeah, <laughs> right? Um, you give them tools to help them deal with those problems. Well, then that really starts to get them on board. You know, my experience in Russia was really mixed. There were some people out there that really wanted tigers around, other people that really saw the value, but kind of the attitude, yeah, tigers are great, but would prefer not to have them in my mm. backyard which if you live in the outside of a city in Russia, you have tigers in your backyard within tiger range anyway. I certainly did. I lived at the edge of a town and, and literally had tigers wandering through my backyard. So, you know, you, you get a real mix, I think. And I would say Southeast Asia, there seems to be the least understanding of a lot of those issues and the value and importance of tigers. And that's probably part of the reason why um, tigers are doing more poorly in Southeast Asia. I really wanted to ask you about tiger tourism john because it feels when you read about it it's almost like a double-edged sword really when you look at big cats like lions and so forth ecotourism is the phrase is thrown around as a solution to every single problem in every single country with all different various geopolitical and, and institutional issues that you have throughout africa from my understanding it has become almost a double-edged sword for tigers particularly in india is that still the case or are NGOs and, and governments trying to now find solutions in order to maintain the industry, which both creates money for communities and the government, but also doesn't impact upon the welfare of tigers? Well, I think India and Nepal, you know, a huge part of their success is because of tourism and that tiger tourism is very successful there. You know, and we 
earlier we were talking about how secretive tigers are and how hard they are to see, but there are lots of reserves in India and Nepal where you can go and spend a few days and you're almost guaranteed to see a tiger. So that makes tourism successful there. And they've developed some pretty good tourism models involving local communities so that local communities see a lot of benefit to having tigers around. But those models aren't going to work in Southeast Asia where your chances of ever seeing a tiger are going to be really small. And the second part of my answer to that question more broadly for ecotourism in general as a conservation solution, be it tigers, be it any species or ecosystem in the world, COVID-19 has shown us how risky that solution is. You know, tourism has been shut down around the world. There is essentially no wildlife tourism going on in the world right now. And that's a huge problem. Um, We'll get through it with COVID-19, but the next pandemic, we need to be, we shouldn't abandon tourism as a solution. It's certainly an excellent solution in a lot of cases, but we need to build more resilient systems and systems and, and interventions that are resilient to, for example, when tourism gets shut down because of a pandemic. You mentioned before about Tiger King. And have you noticed, because one of the things that was mentioned a lot in the media, and those of us that worked in animal welfare or conservation for a while know the fact that, as they say, there are more tigers kept in captivity in the United States than exist in in the wild. But this is something that has now become part of the common lexicon. Everybody now who has seen that documentary knows that. And as a result, there is this sudden awareness of the precariousness of tiger populations that maybe a lot of people didn't realize before the documentary highlighted that. Have you seen a knock-on effect? Have you seen through your work, there is a greater interest, at least through social media or communication or anything, uh, that people are now suddenly highlighted to the issue of tiger welfare and tiger conservation? Good question. I'm not sure if I have. Um, I, I certainly agree with you. You know, the premise that Tiger King was so wildly successful as a documentary, even though it was absolutely appalling to watch. <laughs> <It was. laughs> I couldn't get through the whole thing just because it showed such appalling human yeah. behavior. But it was an excellent documentary and getting people to understand what the issues are with captive mm-hmm. tigers and extending that to wild populations. To some extent, people are, are certainly much more aware of that now. What that's translated to in terms of of conservation really isn't very clear yet. And I think the whole COVID-19 pandemic has made it more difficult to really see the results of or what we might hope would be the results of that. But we'll see. In terms of bringing it back to Panthera now, before we press record on this podcast, I shamelessly admitted that I'm not shamelessly admitting it, I'm quite very proud to admit it, um, that Panthera for me is the gold standard in cat conservation. And you've always been at the forefront. Harry's mentioned this podcast, Lost Land of the Tiger, and that's actually the first time I became aware of Panthera. And then I got to sort of find out your incredible work that you're doing, whether it's with, with all the big cat species, but also iconic and sort of groundbreaking work with cats like the African golden cat with Layla Bahaldin, who um, I hope I've pronounced her name and your name correctly, Layla there, but her work was just inspiring. What is Panthera's approach to big cat conservation in terms of where do you focus your efforts? Because as we've gathered through this podcast, you're talking about countries and communities all across the world with all the major big cat species 
it must be so difficult to formulate a strategy. What is your remit and what does Panthera primarily focus on? It is really challenging. Um, and I, the answer to your question really is it varies quite a bit by species. Um, so we have a conservation strategy for all of the big cat species and then an overall strategy right now for the remaining 33 small cat species. Ultimately, we'll break that 33 small cat species out into individual species strategies. But the key to all the strategies is recognizing the critical threats. What's driving population declines in small cats? What threats need to be reduced so that we can reverse those declines and increase cat numbers? And that's another critical aspect of, of our strategies across the board. It's not about just trying to protect what we have. It's setting goals for recovery. And, you know, we want more cats in the world. We want more cat habitat. And, you know, we're not just trying to, as Alan would say, Alan Rabinowitz often said, stop the bleeding. We're trying to recover cat numbers. For our tiger conservation strategy, I can get a little bit more specific. Since poaching is, is really the greatest threat, but habitat loss is also a very, very significant threat. Our strategy focuses on those two threats. We deal with the poaching problem by selecting the most important tiger populations and most important protected areas across the tiger's range. And if those populations are depressed, we work to recover tiger numbers, mostly through anti-poaching operations. And so we call these sites source sites. These are sites that when they are recovered, tigers will be reproducing enough so that they'll be pumping out their cubs into the surrounding landscape and populating that surrounding landscape. And again, much of that is, is very site-focused and it's very anti-poaching-focused. At the broader scale, we want to connect those source sites, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, make sure that all those protected areas are connected by corridors that are tiger habitat that actually have tiger populations living with, within them, but they're living together with local communities and all sorts of other activities and certainly are not going to be as well protected in those protected areas. But our overall vision is these thriving landscapes made up of multiple source populations of tigers that are all well connected. Where did your fascination with big cats come from? Was it something that you were always drawn to or did it come slowly but surely as you kind of got into conservation and were involved in the work? Where did your passion for all of this come from? Well, I was kind of born a biologist. Mm -hmm. My earliest memories are of things like going to the local ponds and catching frogs and snakes and turtles and that sort of thing. And, you know, that passion for wildlife just developed as I got older. But I also found that I was most fascinated by the animals that I couldn't mm -hmm. see. You know, you'd see their tracks, you'd see their, the signs of their existence. Maybe you'd catch a glimpse of them once in a while, but they were so mysterious. And so I became very interested in carnivore ecology because they're usually carnivores that are these very secretive, rare animals. So I, you know, in going to graduate school and that sort of thing, I, I focused on wild carnivores. I wouldn't say I ever had a particular desire to focus on cats as opposed to any other carnivore. But I just got really lucky. And when I finished my PhD, was hired on to run the Siberian Tiger Project mm. in, in Russia. And once tigers got their claws in me, they, <laughs> <laughs> 25 or 30 years later, they still haven't let go. 25 years later, I guess, they still haven't let go. But it, it is very much focused on tigers um, and bears and my work in Russia. But in my current position as chief scientist at Panthera, um, I get to work on all the cats now. And that's really exciting and really fascinating. It's quite difficult to because we've known so much about so many cats, John, haven't we? In terms of we talked earlier on about how 
tigers they're such a part of cultural fabric whether it's in the countries they reside but also you know in the uk we, we have pubs named after lions and bars named after tigers you've got in america football teams named after these iconic big cats it's quite difficult i think for for people to understand that there's still some cats though that we barely know anything about like the african golden cat do you still get a thrill from trying to explore and trying to find as much new information and discover new bits of science or whether it's a camera trap about these elusive cats Absolutely. Um, my current position, unfortunately, the opportunity for that thrill is kind of rare because I'm not getting out into the field as much as, as mm. I used to. But, you know, we, Panthera just started its small cats program. Historically, we were very focused on all the big cats. About two years ago, we started a small cats program that handles all 33 of the small cat species. And um, we've been working hard over the past two years to develop the small cat program strategy. It's led by um, a young guy named Waiming Wang, and he's put together the strategy and I've helped him a lot with it. And it's just been fascinating. And, you know, on the one hand, fascinating, on the other hand, a little bit disheartening how little we know about most of the small cat species. Hmm. I mean, some of them, we really know nothing. We don't know what their range is. We have no idea how many there are out there. We don't even know what they eat. And is that still the same with the snow leopard, John? I remember seeing Dr. Rabinovitz talk about we know X amount of lions, we know X amount of tigers and their range and how it's shrunk from percentage to percentage. And then him just saying, and snow leopards, we don't even know what their range is. Is it still the same with snow leopards in particular? Such a big, iconic animal that we know so little about it still. It is to an extent. You know, compared to some of the small cat species, we know a lot about snow leopards, but and we have a pretty good handle on their range because we know what their habitat is. What we don't know is what parts of their range they might have been extirpated from. So if you look at a range map, on the, for example, on the IUCN red list of snow leopards, parts of that range, snow leopards might not be there anymore because they've been poached out or those sorts of things. So we, we don't have a, a good handle on their range in, in that regard. We do know mostly what they eat. We don't have a, a real strong grasp on what the conservation issues are, what the greatest threats are to snow leopards throughout their range. Something that I wanted to ask you, John, and, and you'll have heard me reference him in this talk, the late Dr. Alan Rabinovitz, and I would say I make anyone, John, read his book Jaguar mm. which for me is still I don't know what category you'd call it the nature book or conservation but it's still my num I don't think I've read a book as well written as accessible but so iconic and I, I pass it on to everyone my sort of old tattered copy of it and I just wanted to ask what I take this opportunity and please forgive me for being slightly indulgent here but for what it was like to work with him and, and what you think his legacy will be going forward in terms of big cat conservation and, and science overall well, I think his legacy is huge. You know, part of the reason I came to Panthera was to work for Alan. And it's because he was such a visionary person. And one of my first, or one of my key memories, I'd say it wasn't really necessarily a first memory, but was that I worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society at the time, it was back, I think, in the year 2000. We had a, a big tiger meeting in Thailand or a big WCS tiger meeting, and we're tasked with developing WCS's tiger conservation strategy. And so we had some of the best tiger biologists in the world. You know, Ulus Karanth was there, Dale McKell was there, a number of other very prominent biologists were all there developing this strategy. And, you know, the first thing, well, what goal do we want to set? Well, we decided our goal should be in terms of, of tiger numbers. And that group came up with a goal that was something like no net loss. And when we presented that, and Alan heard it, 
he went ballistic. And he stood up and he gave this speech that was, um, on the one hand, you know, he, he was yelling at us, literally yelling at us, telling us what a ridiculous goal it was. So, you know, we, we all felt, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty degraded, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but at the same time, it was probably the most inspiring speech I had ever heard because what he said was, man, a hundred years ago, there was a hundred thousand tigers on the face of the earth. And there, there are right now roughly a million square kilometers of vacant tiger habitat out there. We could do so much better than just no net loss of tigers. We could have 10,000 tigers out there. And as a result, we went from no net loss of tigers, and I think world population numbers were estimated at about 3,000 at that time. So we went from no net loss of tigers at about 3,000 to setting a goal of 10,000 tigers. And what that speech resulted in was a complete paradigm shift. It was the first time in tiger conservation that I ever really heard anybody push the goal of increasing tiger numbers. And that took off. You know, the, the initial goal of, of Panthera's tiger program, which started in 2006, was a 50% increase in any population we worked on over the course of 10 years. But of course, then GTI came along. They set a goal of T times two, doubling the number of tigers in the world over the course of 12 years. And WWF picked up that goal. But starting with that speech back in Thailand in 2000, you know, Alan inspired us all and then inspired the world to set our sights so much higher than just let's not lose any more tigers. It must have been so inspirational to work with him. Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, and, and that's the, he saw a world with no limits, no boundaries. You know, you could do anything if you put your mind to it. And that kind of thinking is so important in conservation. You know, we're so limited by what we view as our own limitations or the world's limitations. But if you take off those blinders, so much more can happen. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, when you think back about particularly your experiences in the field, are there particular moments that you reflect back on that really strike you as a wow moment, something that you, you think, oh, what a privilege, what an amazing thing to have seen or have been involved in? You know, I am so lucky to have so many of those moments that I've completely lost track of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes, that happens all the time. And, and very often it's a different moment that I'm reflecting back wow. on and, and might be something I haven't even thought about in a year. You know, it's having the opportunity to live for 15 years and work on tigers in Russia and work with this cadre of amazing Russian field biologists. You know, I'm just like, I'm the luckiest person <laughs> in the world. And there were so many moments during that 15 years there and so many moments since then that have been, you know, life changing, I, I guess you'd say, from the first time we touched down in Russia to seeing my first tiger to lots of crazy encounters with tigers that have really changed me. And, and just living in for 15 years in a small town, very small town in, in rural Russia has changed me dramatically. What was it like to see your first tiger? I remember every time I used to... You know, I was never thrilled about it, but I would sometimes go to, to a zoo and just seeing a captive tiger is just breathtaking. What is it like to see a tiger, John? I know that sounds such a, a childish question almost. Um, <laughs> oh, no. and, and I can't help but ask you, because if I, as a listener, I'm desperate to know, John, how, how did that experience in Russia change you? Well, the first tiger, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Every time you see a tiger, it's mind-blowing. Even though I've seen hundreds of them now, every time I see one, it blows my mind. But um, I remember in, in Russia, the first tiger I saw, I was actually in a helicopter and we were trying to capture the tiger to change its radio collar. 
were flying over this beautiful forest that looked exactly like home. I grew up in upstate New York. And, you know, you're flying over this forest. I could have been anywhere where I grew up and listening to this radio signal, trying to hone in on this tiger. And then all of a sudden there's this, this huge tiger just loping through the forest below me. Um, and it's just, it was amazing. The beauty and grace of that animal. And, to, you know, to think that there it is in this forest that's so familiar to me. And yet here's this animal that's so exotic was incredible. Wow. But, I, you know, I think thinking about my time in Russia, there was a, a very pivotal change in my career while I was in Russia. You know, I started out my career not wanting to be directly involved in conservation. I didn't want to be on the front lines of conservation. I wanted to be doing research on on wildlife, but asking research questions that were very important to conservation. So providing that scientific base that conservation can be launched from. And, you know, I was very clear on that in my mind, but at some point in Russia, after studying tigers there for 10 or 15 years and watching more than 70% of the tigers that I put radio collars on get killed by poachers, I couldn't help but make that shift to forget about the research or not forget about it, but stop doing it um, or stop having that play the key role in what I was doing and stepped into the front lines of conservation. Wow. You know, when you're just watching your study animals, it's heartbreaking yeah. watching them die all around you and you can't help but take that next step to try to do something about it, even though it's a job that, you know, there's a big difference between being on the front lines of conservation, trying to influence governments and, and local people. There's a huge difference between that or spending my days in the field following tigers around, mm. right? We talked earlier on in the podcast about the three different regions and the two that are doing so much better and the, the one that isn't. Are you seeing not just tigers, but big cat conservation as a whole? Are you seeing an upward trend generally? Are you hopeful that things are progressing to move in the right direction? Oh, I am definitely hopeful, um, you know, especially for tigers. We have tiger conservation figured out. And by we, I mean the not just Panthera, the tiger conservation community as a whole, governments and NGOs and, and everyone involved. The recipe is really simple. You know, you protect habitat, you stop poaching, protect these key protected areas for tigers and make sure that they're connected. You know, conceptually, that's not difficult. Implementing it on the ground can be, can be very complicated mm -hmm. and difficult, but still, we understand what needs to be done. And where people are doing it, it's working really well. Our model has been been demonstrated and tiger numbers are increasing, even if it's only regionally at this point, we're having a lot of success and, and we're moving the ball in the right direction. Tigers are still the most critically endangered big cat. There's only about 4,000 in the world, but we're pretty sure that we can, we are and, and will continue to change that. And, you know, I think applying those same principles to all cats, we can continue to move the ball in, in the right direction. So I am hopeful, but climate change and ever-increasing human populations are not going to make things any easier, mm. that's for sure. Um, Harry's going to laugh right now because he knows what I'm <laughs> going to ask you probably. Um, is This is n not for my own interest here, John, honestly, but you know, you work for, as I've said throughout this podcast, shamelessly, the world's leading Big Cat Conservation, the gold organization, the gold standard. Harry's laughing. I'm just going to interrupt going. here for a second, just to pre-warn you, John, that this is a preamble for Matt essentially sending you his CV. 
um sorry about this john sorry about you know i I was going to do this with a bit of tact and respect but harry has rightfully shamed me um you you work for the like i said for me in my eyes that the world's leading organization when it comes to big cats the gold standard i love everything about panthera and being there i think thinking of me a few years ago i would have loved to have just known what you feel what skill or what you would recommend to people who are just getting into this industry or just wanting to help big cats? What one thing would piece of advice would you give to to people like that? And also, uh, whether uh, covering letter needs to be one side or two sides, John. <laughs> <laughs> if it's coming to me, it's got to be short and sweet. No worries. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think if you look across the board at, at Panthera biologists, what most of us One of our greatest strengths is that we really know cats. We have a very strong background of doing research on cats in the field so that we really understand the species biology and the threats. And so that's, you know, people ask me almost weekly, probably, I I get, you know, young graduate students reaching out and looking for advice. and, And that's the advice I give them. Get that experience in the field with the cats and get international experience if you can. You know, often I'm talking to Americans and to us, international experience is going to Canada, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> for most Americans, I say, get out there, you know, um, travel around, <laughs> see the world, and um, and get that big cat experience or the field. Experience. For people that are listening to this podcast and that aren't necessarily involved in animal welfare but have a passion for it or, or, or are interested in the subject or conservation, other than checking out Pantera and the incredible work that you do, what advice would you give people who care about this? I mean, we talked about, obviously, when the world opens up again and we have ecotourism and the opportunity to provide local support to projects and things like that. But is there anything else that people who care about this can do to feel like they are helping make a difference? There is. Although I I know people are often frustrated by not really feeling like they're helping to Mm -hmm. make a difference. You know, and one of the first things you can do is check out Panthera, check out other organizations that are involved in big cat conservation or whatever conservation issue you want to support and um, support those organizations. You know, especially now with COVID-19, charitable organizations like Panthera are struggling. Donations are Mm -hmm. declining and um, we really need the help and the support. But beyond that... Also related to COVID-19, you know, COVID-19 started because of a, a disease coming from a wildlife mm. market. Those same wildlife markets are, are what are driving the decline in big cats. We need to shut down those markets and people can push their local legislators and push for legislation that's against wildlife markets and against wildlife trade. Let's get stronger protections in place. And that's where uh, I'm going to shame, I'm going to plug Harry's organization here, John. That's where <laughs> Harry comes in. Harry runs an organization called Change for Animals that works on things like that. So he would have probably shamelessly edited that in, hadn't I brought that up. So I just thought I would bring it up as well. Sorry, Harry. No, it's fair enough. But you're absolutely right, John. That's And thanks, Matt. That's, you know, that is an area that we work on, wildlife trade. I mean, we're only a small organization, but we try and do our part. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There are so many elements to conservation. And I don't know about you, John, but one of the things that I am most pleased about, I think possibly in the last decade, 
because for the longest time, conservation and welfare seemed to be worlds apart and, and exist in almost completely different universes. And now I see the collaboration so much better. Welfare organizations linked and working with scientific method and conservation organizations, understanding welfare and, and the wider impacts of the thing. And I think that's such an incredible and useful progress that's been made in recent years. Yeah, I would agree with you. And, you know, early on in my conservation career, one of my greatest frustrations was how organizations compete with each other. You mm -hmm. know, if you take uh, any conservation or animal welfare NGO, we're all kind of competing for the same pot of funding. But that competition for funding kind of spread to competition in what we're doing on the ground. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense. You know, if we don't band together and act as one group with one voice, then we're not going to get the Couldn't job agree done. more. That was quite an issue in time of conservation for a while, I believe, was it? I was reading um, a book by Judith Mills. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but she was talking about people almost vying for the top table, uh, sort of big announcements for sort of tiger conservations uh, and people not necessarily working together in some stakeholders, but then it's sort of generally changing after a while. It is generally changing. It's definitely getting better. That said, tiger conservation has a lot of silverbacks. <laughs> and, you know, getting people to put aside their egos and just work towards this common goal and, and not worry so much about whether or not you're getting credit for the work is really important. In other words, Vladimir Putin. That's, that's who we're talking about here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, Putin has done great things for tiger conservation. He is, uh, a lot of people think it's more just um, showing off and flexing his muscles without a shirt on or whatever, but he does have a sincere interest in conservation. He's put good funding into tiger conservation and has brought a lot of attention to it. And it's a really important thing in Russia because there is so much national pride in Russia and he's developed a lot of pride mm -hmm. surrounding tiger conservation in Russia among Russians. So it's, you know, it's a good thing. He's, I can't think of any other president or world leader who has been that involved in conservation, mm -hmm. contemporary anyway. He hosted the first Global Tiger Initiative. Thank you, Initiative yes. Conference. Was that in St. Yeah. Petersburg, I believe, or somewhere like that? He launched yeah, the, he yeah. hosted it, didn't he? He hosted that. He has been out into the field on tiger conservation projects on a number of occasions. And, you know, that kind of level of support is what you need. You know, that's going to make tiger conservation in your country work. Well, that was really fascinating, wasn't it, Matt? What a great guy John is. Yeah, I mean, just what a privilege to talk to him. And he's just yeah. a wealth of experience and knowledge. And hopefully from that podcast, people will begin to understand and have an appreciation of why I hold Panthera as an organization in such high esteem and why, to be quite frank, we're lucky to have organizations like them around now Absolutely. because it's only with organizations like them, with people like John, who are committed, driven, and science-led, and who are innovative. Only with them are we going to be able to combat some of these awful issues facing really threatened species like tigers. You're really still just desperate to get that job, aren't you? Listen, mate, <laughs> covering letters ready to go. I'm just, a, I, I'm not really, I'm annoyed, you know, what do I have to do? Who do I need to sleep with, Harry? Uh, John, probably. Um, Listen. Maybe a tiger? <laughs> 
but it's got to be like one of the influential ones, like the one from Esso or something like that. Not just you like your Commodore Garden Tiger. Yeah. Like the one from Life of Pi. Yeah, exactly. If you can sleep with that tiger, then I reckon you'd probably be in with a chance. Apparently, it, that tiger knows Ang Lee and is like two degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon and things like that. So. Are you ready? Are you ready? Quick yep. five quid. Okay. As quick as you can, name five tigers. Famous Tony tigers. the Tiger. One. Life of Pi Tiger. I'll let you off that one. Go All right. On. Esso Tiger. <laughs> Go. Tiger Woods. <laughs> <laughs> and number five... Uh, Shere Khan from The Jungle Book. Ah, well done, well done. <laughs> oh, that's the sort of stuff, ladies and gentlemen, that you are... We could have done that in the intro, couldn't we? We could have done, but now we've done it here and people will go, well, this could have been the intro. And, yeah. and now they're listening to it and they go, wow, they're mixing stuff up. We don't know what to what to expect from these guys. Yeah. Oh, they're innovators. They're so creative when really... We're winging it every single second. Of the Literally day. winging it. But no, Literally. it was fantastic speaking to John. It was a real pleasure. Really lovely guy. Really interesting to find out so much in-depth detail about tiger conservation, what's going on through Panthera and the work that he's done. And yeah, you're right. What a fabulous organization. Check them out. Links to Panthera and the work they do are in the description of this podcast. But... Who have we got next yeah. week? Because we've got another cracker of an episode on the next one, don't we, Matt? So we have been fortunate enough to listen to many different people speak about their inspirations, their breaks in their careers, these moments where things happen. This is the first one we have a musical theme, Grateful Dead Harry. I mean, who the heck are we talking about here? We are talking about none other than Gene Bauer the founder of Farm Sanctuary USA, one of the most, and this is no understatement, Gene Bauer, if you're talking about farm animal welfare, if you're talking about veganism and vegetarianism and plant-based lifestyle, Gene Bauer and Farm Sanctuary USA, one of the most influential people, game changer when he first got involved in this. He's been an activist at an animal welfare, an animal rights pioneer. He really did change the game when it comes to animal activism and how we now see the world in regards to farm animals and farm animal welfare. And so he talks about his journey and how he started off, like you said, Grateful Dead concert, selling vegan hot dogs and food out of the back of a van, rescuing a sheep that became the first animal that was rescued as part of Farm Sanctuary. And now he's one of the most influential people who is literally working with industry and making huge waves in plant-based world, in farm animal welfare, in animal agriculture, not just in the United States, but globally. Farm Sanctuary is an amazing organization. And Gene, wow, it was fantastic talking to him because what he's lived through and what he's seen and what he's achieved was really inspiring. And I know we use that word from time to time, but he genuinely is pretty inspiring as a guest. It was great speaking to him, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. It was really great speaking to him. Um, so please, everyone says we should do this, all the blogs, all the forums, but we only ever do it right at the end of the podcast when probably most people, except our mothers, have stopped listening. Please review, subscribe, like. If you are still listening, and if you're still there, listeners, please, yeah, leave a review, 
like, subscribe. It all helps promote the podcast, helps get it out there, helps spread the word, share the stories, which is exactly what we want to do. Obviously, we want you to enjoy it. This whole thing's about you enjoying. I mean, it's actually, no, it, yeah, it's no, far it's more narcissistic than that. It's about us enjoying it. But if you get to enjoy it as well, then that makes us enjoy it a little bit more. So this is about yeah. us enjoying it and therefore you enjoying it and encouraging other people to enjoy it. So like, subscribe, share, do all of the sharey, likey, subscribey things so that we can get this podcast out there and be number one in the world. Listen, I have very low self-esteem. I need this to make me feel good about myself. How about that, Harry? Manipulate them. Emotionally manipulate them to do it. Wow, I'm going for the pity. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Help a poor northern waif. <laughs> waif. <laughs> help, help a poor northern waif achieve his dream of, of a podcast that he can be proud of because he has you know nothing John Snow (laughs) anyway thanks very much for listening everyone please like subscribe share enjoy and we will we'll see you in the next podcast bye everyone bye